Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello and welcome to the conversation on Colloquium. Today I have somebody with really interesting background doing some cool things in the franchise business, Jimmy St. Louis. Jimmy, how are you today? I'm doing great, Brian. How are you? Awesome. Always fun to have somebody on with ties to Nashville, which I think we're going to get into. And along those lines, if you could provide a little bit of background on yourself and tell a story about how you eventually arrived in the franchise business. Sure. Sounds good. Thanks. Yeah. As you said, I have spent some time in Nashville. So I'll give just kind of a quick and short version of how I got into franchising. So after college, and I played college football at Auburn University, I made my way up to Nashville and had a, a stint, short stint with the Tennessee Titans. And that was my affiliation with Nashville. And I really enjoyed the city. I was living there when it was a little bit more of the country music scene. And I know it's made its transition now and the city is booming and it's a really exciting place to be. Um, so it's Always nice to see that and have lots of friends up there still and uh, definitely in a great place. After that, I um, made my way up to New York, worked on Wall Street, worked at Deutsche Bank for a short time. And we were actually working on a, on a consulting gig with a larger family office out of Dallas, Texas, EFO family office. And they were looking at doing some investments in healthcare. And we had connected and they were looking at doing some investments in surgery centers and Long story short, we ended up launching a nationwide network of spine surgery centers around the country. And I left Deutsche to go and help operate and found that company. And we were doing a unique spinal surgery out of these centers, but our timing was pretty interesting. We were the first healthcare company to advertise direct consumer through Google AdWords back in 2005 and six. And because of that, we were able to find a pretty unique niche where we could go direct to consumer. Most healthcare companies were relied on their payer network for referrals. 
we were able to market direct to consumer and bring in patients from all over the country and all over the world into our centers. Fast forward about five years, we had 1,500 employees and we we're about 250 million in annualized revenue. We saw a lot of success there and had a lot of fun doing it. I left that company in 2012 and started a healthcare consulting company. The objective of the company was to try to find the next opportunity in healthcare where our direct consumer business model would work. And I ran that company for three years, ended up selling the consulting contracts to a larger healthcare consulting network. And we ended up acquiring a portfolio of cellular therapy patents from Group Down in Miami. We relocated them and rebranded that company and launched a company called Regenerative Medicine Solutions. We were doing cell-based therapy for lung disorders. We opened up 15 centers around the country, and we ended up doing a transaction with a smaller public company. They acquired the assets of the company and all of our research, and we did about 10,000 successful procedures with those clinics, and it was just a fun time to treat a lot of patients and change a lot of lives, and so after That was back in, that exit was actually the end of 2015 going into 2016. And I was, uh, of course, a former professional football player and was still pretty active in sports, doing triathlons and was doing CrossFit and actually just being a taller guy, 6'5", so not really built for the CrossFit, the competitive CrossFit world, but had a little bit of success and actually got invited to go and compete in Boston in this rowing indoor rowing competition called the Crash Bees. And they fly people in from all over the world. It's called, considered the Indoor World Rowing Championships. I didn't know something like that existed at the time. And competed and finished third and didn't know a whole lot about the sport. And I thought, you know, I've got some time on my hands now. I've had a pretty fun business career. And I decided to pursue, I guess, an opportunity to try to make the U.S. Olympic rowing team. And I contacted them and they had me fly up to Princeton and compete in some of their races and ended up doing pretty well. So for the balance of that year leading up to the Olympic trials, I flew out to California, learned the sport as fast as I could, got in a couple of boats and competed and raced in the trials and ended up doing pretty well. So I got the chance to make a run at the Olympic rowing team. And while I was out there, a little bit older than the other guys that were out there competing for a spot. So I was looking for the next business opportunity. And I was actually watching the Today Show. And there was a feature on this franchise company called City Row. And Al Roker had gone into one of the studios up in New York City. And he was really impressed by it. And they were launching a a franchise, essentially, for indoor rowing studios, uh, similar to like an orange theory, but much more of an emphasis on rowing and circuit training. And I called them and said, hey, I'd like to open up a couple studios in Florida. This could be a lot of fun. Here's my background and my experience. And we kind of hit it off. I got in touch with the managing partner of their holding company, and we became pretty good friends. And instead of investing in some of those studios, we started to find different ways to work together somewhat joined their team through an investment and started to look into opportunities within franchising. 
So um, I can pause there. I can, I'd be happy to talk about the opportunities within franchising that we see and the reason why I wrote the book and the reason why we launched Franchise 123. But that's the couple year journey of how I made my way into the industry of franchising. Yeah, it's such a cool story to go from <laughs> SEC football, CrossFit competitor, you know, potential Olympian right there on the brink of making the team, business background. It seemed like you have the ability to code switch really easy, right? Like just a natural athlete, have a sense of business. Given all of that, what did you find so attractive about the franchise business and the model? So, you know, I started to take a look back at my career and really started to reflect on what drove me towards these areas of healthcare in particular at the start. And what I realized it was really about helping people and helping people either meet an unmet need or helping people to achieve their goals. And it was fun to grow these companies and create career opportunities for people. And I think that is why franchising was exciting to me. I really think that the business of franchising is like the American dream. You give people the opportunity to run and operate their own business while being supported. You know, we, we say in, in franchising, you know, be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. And that's what I thought was, was so attractive, that franchising provides this gateway for individuals who may have an entrepreneurial spirit, but may not be interested or have a knack for some of that back office stuff that it takes to start a business from scratch. And uh, we thought that this gives them the opportunity. And to me, I think trying to hone in on some of these niches within franchising is just creating new business owners every single day in franchising. And that's what has been exciting to me about what we're doing. And I agree with you. I think there's a reason, especially people who are, who are new to the States, the immigrant population in particular is attracted to this business because you can really create some very legitimate wealth in not a huge amount of time. But it's also an industry that I think is really misunderstood, especially with your background on Wall Street, historically not an industry that institutional capital is fully understood or maybe appreciated or embraced. And in your experience, well, backing up, what is the opportunity set? When people kind of think about franchise, I think their mind immediately goes to you know Burger King, fast casual, but it's a much bigger world beyond that. Could you maybe talk a little bit about the business in general and the ecosystem as it exists today? Sure. Happy to do that. I think there's a couple of topics here. One is related to you know, perhaps institutional capital doesn't quite understand the opportunity here. And I think to an extent that's absolutely correct. But what's really interesting about franchising is you start to create this, this predictable, protectable business, where as a franchisor, your main first objective is how do you get to 100 units? Statistically speaking, when you get to 100 units, now you are sufficient in terms of your royalties coming in and you're able to successfully support your operations. And when they get to that number, what we're actually seeing is we're seeing some larger investment groups go and actually consider not acquiring the franchisor, or, you know, the parent company, but they're acquiring these larger franchising networks. And they may go buy and buy 50 or 100 units. And what's interesting about that business model is you could have one or two or three or 10 of those fail but you still have a level of protection from all the other ones succeeding. So we actually, you can see what's interesting is even 
industry multiples when people are buying franchisors systems or these franchising networks, some of them are trading 15 to 20 times EBITDA. And it's happening, I think, because of just the nature of the business model from that perspective. But to the topic on this understanding about what franchising really is, you're right, they think about the Burger King. Everyone knows, of course, about the McDonald's story and how interesting and spectacular that is. But franchising is much more than just fast food restaurants and restaurants in general. Um, Although restaurants make up a large portion of the portfolio, it's still less than half. In fact, it's closer to a third of all the franchise or brands that are out there. What we see is franchising actually gives small groups or small companies or husband and wife teams the chance to take something that may have been special and successful and scale it all over the country or all over the world in a manner that they could not have done without this franchising model. And it gives them a chance to build a strong brand and to build an incredible company and to get to know a lot of people. And again, to just help the the market see perhaps a special product they may have, a special service, a special type of food, whatever that may be. And for example, and during this pandemic, people started working from home. I think working from home is going to be here to stay. Of course, some of those dynamics will shift a little bit as the COVID dynamics start to settle in. But we saw a big move in terms of services franchises. People want their home offices to look nice. They want their homes to look nice. They want their garages to look nice. They want to, now they're really starting to focus on quality of the house and their environment that they're living in, even more so than they were doing before. So we saw a number of franchisor systems pop up of these home services groups, electricians, plumbers, uh, just home cosmetics, landscaping, and they may have had a unique approach or a streamlined way to centralize their back office systems that allowed for that type of franchise concept to make sense. You might have had an individual who unfortunately was furloughed during COVID said, hey, I don't want this to ever happen to me again. And I don't know how to grow a business, but I'm a great electrician. I'm a great plumber. I'm, I'm good at these types of home services. They could plug in for a ten dollars to $15,000 entry point, have a van, and that company has great marketing, and they're plugged in. And now they've got a whole territory of business for them. So, you know, franchising is much more than just the restaurants. And we've seen a lot of interesting concepts, like I just described, pop up here, even during this pandemic. So let's get into the book. What was the motivation? And and we'll add a link to the book, but it's called Franchise 123, Comprehensive Guide to Franchise Success. And I I read this and it's really interesting because it it is a huge part of the economy. It's a big industry, but there's really a paucity of resources, it seems like, except maybe from the franchisors themselves, but independent resources to help folks navigate what is a fairly complex industry. What made you initially choose to write this book? The book and then the reason behind Franchise 123 are are slightly different, but they serve the same mission. So the book was created to help franchisees or future franchisees understand that there's a system and a method to follow to properly select the right business opportunity for them. And if you look back at the way in which individuals decide to get into franchising, They go online, they do a little bit of a search, they contact a consultant or a broker, and that broker points them towards a couple of brands that they think may be a good fit for them. But I think there's a little bit of misaligned interest there. 
that the brokers, of course, only have a limited number of companies within their portfolio. And the individual doesn't have access to see and view all 4,000 plus franchise opportunities that are there for them. And so we created Franchise 123 as essentially Zillow for franchising, where we wanted to give future franchise investors and operators the chance to identify, research, and decide on the actual best fit for them by arming them with all the tools and all the research capability that they need to be successful. The book was intended to take that idea of Zillow for franchising and expand upon it and to give them the tools in their hand to go from 4,000 franchise locations or franchise opportunities all the way down to that one that may be a perfect fit for them. If you look at the way in which people were selecting them before, they were being guided towards those brands that may be a fit for them, but they weren't gathering the right information that they may need. So for example, in the book, we help them first go through what are your non-negotiables? How much money do you have to invest? What industries are you interested in and where do you need to be located? We see that statistically that takes them from 4,000 down to a couple hundred right away. And then once you start to get into that, we go into what are your business skills? What's your background? Really start to help them go down from those couple hundred down to say 50 or so opportunities. After that, we encourage them to start to call on these brands to gather as much information as they can to compare them side by side and to really make sure that these are the types of companies that they may be passionate about. And once they get down to those 10 brands, that's where the real work starts to happen. And that's where they are calling and interviewing franchisees. And we really see these franchisees, I mean, these are going to be mentors and partners. These are people that are living what they're about to live. And we want them to hear and to get a peek inside of what operating that business may really look like. And then, of course, we take them through sales and marketing strategies, operational strategies, uh, site selection. And again, it's a pretty extensive process, but over the course of, say, 60 to 90 days, you can feel much more comfortable that you are now being paired up with the brand that really is right for you. And you have a strategic plan in front of you to be successful. So that was really the reason why we just saw that this industry didn't really have the tools out there to help future franchisees almost assure success where they kind of felt like they were on their own. We're serving as a partner who gives them the tools to really make that right selection for them. So I do want to get into the nitty gritty because, you know, I think we've covered the thematic issues and some of the larger ones about the franchise industry, but actionable advice is always really helpful for listeners. But before we get into it, this first section that we just kind of covered is the identification period, as you put it in the book. Given your experience and talking to a number of franchisees, if somebody's considering getting into this business, what are fact patterns and skill sets that you see that lead to success? And what are scenarios where you see red flags and it's not the right fit for somebody to enter into the space? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. I think it's important first to note that you know we don't think without this tool that everyone just makes a bad decision. I mean, there are just some bulletproof business models out there where if if you are qualified, you're a good operator, you have the capital to do it, you ask the right questions, you put the right team in place, you're going to be successful. What we're really trying to do is to serve that other roughly 80% of franchisees who may not have really known what they were getting into, but they may have entered a system because of the price point or because they think it's a hot market. So to me, 
some of the details around what makes a franchisee successful or doesn't, some of those are just basic business fundamentals. And I think that a lot of franchise consultants and brokers will argue, hey, look, this isn't about pairing up and, and selection. This is really about the operator and the franchise or just not selecting the right operator. I think to an extent there could be some truth to that, but that certainly is is not a that's not going to be the large majority of, of people. So first off, I mean, of course, selecting the right one and having the right business background, all that stuff matters. But where we really see it is similar to business when someone chases money, it's unlikely that they're going to be successful for the long term that it really is, especially in franchising, it's about passion, right? Are you really a fit for this? Are you going to work every day to make sure this is successful? Do you plan on being in the business every day or are you planning on hiring a good operator? And anytime they involve more and more people, the likelihood of success really boils down to how meticulous they're going to be in the hiring process, the training process, et cetera. So when we look at, but if I was to take a step back, let's say we've got 80% of the market where these are brands that aren't widely known. They're not known all over the country. They may be known locally and they may have 50 or hundred units, but they may not be, may not have assured success. So I think there's a couple things to take into account. One, franchisor systems fail every day. So if you're looking at going into an emerging brand, there's some trade-offs that take place. We actually see that emerging brands actually are better for people that are truly entrepreneurial, largely because these emerging brands also don't have it all figured out. Even though they have their system in place and they may have their back office, there's some things around operating the business, the studio, the platform, whatever it is that the franchisee is investing in, that the franchisor has not yet figured out. And they will rely on you as a franchisee to be successful. So we believe that those emerging brands really should, the franchisees that invest in them should be ones that are a little bit more entrepreneurial, have that creative mindset, and they're willing to offer feedback to the franchisors to help them be successful. There's then the kind of those middle market groups that have 100 plus units. And although they may not have everything figured out yet, we really see that people who have a bit of an entrepreneurial spirit, but they're okay working within a system and without not bucking that system is going to be what leads to success. We think at that point in time, the franchisor has figured out what works for them. They figured out what doesn't work for them. And if you have an individual who says, hey, I want to have more of a say in what happens on a daily basis with product and inventory and packages and sales and et cetera, that may be a very difficult relationship for them and the franchisors. So I really think that's really why we put this tool in place is to encourage them to ask these questions and to go through these different scenarios so they can take a good hard look at themselves to see uh, which of these brands may really indeed be a long-term fit for them. And along those lines, this moving on to the section two, which is about research, it seems like a classic funnel exercise to me where there's a lot of nuance and technicalities involved, but you're taking what is a really large universe and trying to get down to you know one or two really viable options. There's a lot in this chapter, and some of it was really foreign conceptually to me, but could you maybe walk us through what that exercise looks like for franchisees? Sure. So a couple of things. One of the most important tools that you will have that people 
often interestingly enough do overlook is the franchise disclosure document or the FDD, if you will. Oftentimes franchisors put those in place as a formality. The genesis of the FDD was actually several decades ago. Franchising was kind of like the wild, wild west. And what you're seeing was people were kind of being targeted and they were being convinced to Hey, take out the home equity line of credit, you know, you know, take out your life savings, put it into this business. It's going to make you successful. And when it would fail, there wasn't really a whole lot of recourse. And those franchisees at the time were going up to the franchisors. It was just, gosh, it was terrible to see. And the franchise disclosure document was really put into place to protect you as a franchisee and to protect the franchisor to say, look, we've told you the good, the bad, and the ugly about this business. And within that document, it's going to have everything from how much money they think you'll make, how much money they think it will cost, and ultimately other things like, here's our marketing strategy. Here's the business plugins you have to use. Here's our legal background, right? This is lawsuits. Here's franchisees that have sued us for not being successful. Here's franchisees that have just frankly not been successful and why, right? So that goes into a lot of those details. And I think that that's a pretty extensive document that should be focused on because it really gives you a sneak peek into this business history. And it can be daunting, right? I mean, some of these disclosure documents can be three, four or 500 pages. And we're not suggesting that you have to read every single word in that, but we do think it's a great tool for you to do your research. After you've familiarized yourself with the franchise disclosure document, we have you do some compare and contrast of each of the documents. Fortunately, on our platform, franchise123.com, you can actually sort through the important parts of the FDD online in a really easy, comparable manner, side by side by side, which gives you the chance to filter through these things in a matter of minutes as opposed to a matter of hours. Now, after you are able to go through those things and follow those exercises, I think the two most important things are to have a, or to have a formal process in place where what you're doing is you are talking to the franchisors and you have a detailed system in place where you are asking all the right questions to the franchisors in a structured way. And it's not just a free-flowing conversation. You should really control that conversation. The next thing is, and it can take more time, but that's calling at least 10 franchisees. So, you know, so what this is, is these are going to be, you know, individuals that you're calling who are going to be your future partners. And these are, you're asking them, hey, are you getting the support from the franchisors that you expected? Is what the franchisor promised you happening? How do they communicate to you? Do you have weekly calls, monthly calls? Are you really getting the support? Or did you just pay for a trademark, a logo, and a brand, and maybe a little bit of advertising? So I think the whole concept of if you pay attention to the details, everything else will work out. That's really what we're trying to follow here. And it can seem daunting, but I think equally as daunting is the fear of losing several hundred thousand dollars of an investment if you've made that wrong decision or if you're just not happy with your life as a business owner if you select the wrong one. So we really encourage people to go through the meats of that subject in detail and to take meticulous notes. 
within the book and on franchise one, two, three, we actually have a digital version of these exercises. So you can actually house all this online and it helps you go through so you can do it at your own leisure, which is great. You don't have to sit down for weeks at a time and stop everything you're doing. You can do it in your spare time and it lets you move on to the next section as you successfully complete one section and then move on to the next. So you can do those things at, at your own pace and collect all the data and complete the scoring system in a manner that works for you as well. So it, in my experience, you're entering into a pretty long-term partnership here, obviously. You need to have the quantitative analysis done. You need to have the legal analysis done. But how important is also just your gut reaction to the franchisor during this whole process? You know, I always talk about the, you know, it, in all decisions and in particular in business, you have the science and the art, right? And you can't ever too heavily rely on one versus the other. There's got to be the right balance to it. And in this sense, the art is kind of your gut and the science is the program to utilize in a scoring system to help you understand, hey, you know, this is the right fit for me. And although I think you can rely on the scoring system, if end of the day you look at it and you say, this isn't going to be fun for me, you certainly don't do it. On the other hand, um, you know, you'll hear every day, I think a great example would be if you're investing in the market, in the stock market, and you just, for whatever reason, have an affinity towards something. And, you know, the market analysts are saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it. You always will hear the stories about someone becoming wildly successful because they trusted their gut. I tend to think that those stories or the stories about, hey, you know, this guy almost lost it all and he persevered and turned it into a multi-billion dollar force. Those are great inspirational stories, but gosh, they can lead to a lot of heartache because you don't always have the right timing, the right luck. And sometimes things just don't work out. In fact, when you're stuck back in a hole and you know, I think oftentimes people don't know when to cut bait, it just leads to some serious challenges. So to me, I think the beginning is follow your passion, trust your gut. You know, hey, these are, I would like this versus another. But we would encourage you to go through the exercises to at least double check to make sure that you are really doing what's right for you on the scientific side. But end of the day, I mean, your feeling inside is what's going to help you feel good about your decision that you made. And if you could only ask one question of the franchisor during what is a very long courting ritual, what would that question be? I would ask what has been, if you can describe in detail, what has been the recipe for success for your franchisees and really have them dig into detail around this is who's been successful and why, and this is who hasn't been successful and why. That, of course, I think should be coupled with why'd you start this business? But assuming that this is a well-known business and a well-known brand, I would really want to understand what that recipe for success has been for the franchisees. Right, because it's interesting if, from a business model perspective because the franchisor is giving you the recipe for success, theoretically, right? They're giving you the game plan, the playbook. And on some level, you have to kind of question, well, why would they do that, right? Why wouldn't they just execute it on by themselves? And there's a lot of reasons for it, but I think that makes a lot of sense about the question to ask. What are the expectations? Like you pull the trigger, you decide, okay, I'm going to move forward with XYZ franchise. What are the expectations and how divergent are they across franchisors for after transaction support? 
on an ongoing basis? So I've sat in on dozens and dozens of what are called franchise discovery days. That's when the individual who's looking at buying a franchise either flies to the headquarters, they do it virtually. And I've seen some operators really try to help the franchisee feel comfortable that they're going to have a lot of freedom and a lot of liberties. I've had some, I've sat in on some where the owners and the presidents have said, have you ever read a manual? Then that's all you got to do and been very direct with them. I think that's going to be a good indicator for the level of support that you're going to get. That brand that may have been a little bit tougher on that question and say, hey, have you ever read a manual, right? I mean, that's that's someone who believes in what they do. They say, follow the system, follow the manual, ask the questions. We'll be super clear as to how you can be successful. And I think you're going to get a tremendous amount of support because they've really created a system and a method that makes it successful. For those that say, hey, you know, sure, good brand. We're going to help you do some marketing. We'll answer the phone for you. You've got an accounting system. We'll talk to you once a month and we'll review the P&L. We'll see how you guys are doing. I wouldn't expect a lot of support from them. And that may work for people. I mean, again, those more entrepreneurial individuals who are really interested in investing in some of these emerging brands and being a part of the initial team, that may work very well for them. So I think you'll know pretty early on by asking the franchisees in particular, how much support do you get and what does that support look like? I think you'll know pretty early on and post investments, at least the brands that we've, we have and do work directly with, we've seen that the majority of them are there to offer them support. Some of them hone in a little bit more on the nuances of their operations than others. We just haven't seen many brands completely neglect it. And if they do, it's often because that brand may be struggling in some other areas. Maybe the franchisors having capital issues or their focus has just been in other areas. But for the most part, I think you can expect a great deal of support. It just may happen in a number of different fashions. So before we wind down, I want to briefly touch on industry trends. I've got a friend who's in this business, Richard Fitzgerald at Capital Spring. And we've talked about this a little bit. There seems to be a movement towards corporate groups buying back franchises from franchisees or maybe having a preference towards a smaller number of franchisees that control more locations. Is that still the case? And and if so, why is that happening? Yes, that's a great question. There's a number of different things to, to unpack there. The first, as it relates to say the, the franchise or buying back that location, there's a number of things that may have taken place. One, they may have had the option to do so. I think Chick-fil-A is a great example. They, of course, require you. It's First off, it's hard to own a Chick-fil-A, but second, it's they require you to, to run and operate it. You're not going to invest and just have someone else go and run and operate it for you. They have the option to buy it back if you aren't meeting certain expectations. So I think for some more of the sophisticated brands, they are... They just have high standards. They have a very specific threshold as on performance. And you've known from day one that the option to buy it back if you don't meet certain performance standards is certainly there. Generally, that has always been uh, customary within this field. We are actually working with a large holding company in fitness franchising, Exponential Fitness, to help them with some of their brands or sorry, some of their specific locations from individuals that struggled during COVID. So that's reason two. COVID hits, of course, some industries harder than others. 
of course, it hit fitness studios, it hit restaurants. There's a number of areas it did hit. And so what we actually saw was, even though it might have been temporary, the individuals who owned and operated those studios may have just said, hey, I don't know that I can wait this out for a year. I'm going to have to move on. And the franchisor buys that studio back from them, typically a negotiated rate. We're working with this group, Exponential Fitness, to help them get now those studios in the hands of capable operators. So individuals who are interested in owning the franchise now, because of this resale opportunity, may be able to get into, say, fitness franchising for just the franchise fee. I mean, these are studios that may have cost four or $500,000. And now for 50 or $60,000 of an investment, you can be handed the keys to a studio and go and run and operate it. So we're seeing that the franchisors are buying them back either for lack of performance or from the franchisee just being tired and saying, I just can't do this anymore. And then the third component is related to the larger investment groups. So I'll give you an example, Crunch Fitness there are actually some of the most successful franchise investments are Crunch Fitness has a one that's a large holding company that I think owns 25 of these facilities. And I mean, their EBITDAs are three, four, five million a piece. I mean, it's amazing what they're doing. And so they're seeing that investing in these successful studios and owning and operating those studios is even a better move than acquiring the franchisor. So a number of different trends there that we're seeing and a number of different reasons why, some because they've been successful and some because they've been unsuccessful, but that kind of aftermarket resale opportunity within franchising is definitely an interesting space for us. And so along those lines, when you advise folks or when you talk to them about getting into this space, either before or during, what do the exits look like right now? What are realistic exit opportunities and how do these folks think about liquidity liquidity ultimately for their franchise business? Yeah, it's a great question. So when I mentioned the multiples before, that's typically for the franchise system. These are 15 to 20 times EBITDA multiples, largely because that business model is pretty solid. You know, you've got a number of units and individual operators fighting for their own business success, which trickles and makes its way up to you. And if you have enough units open, if a couple fail, no harm, no foul. What we see is there's a couple of main components for the individuals that are operating the facilities. And I think it also depends on how many they're operating. You ask the question, why does the franchisor like to see somebody own multiple units? That's just simply because the communication is easier and more streamlined. Right? If someone has five units, you're still talking to the same person and it just makes things easier and more efficient. Although the franchise fee that people pay for five is not equivalent of what they would have paid for one times five, obviously that that franchise fee is less, but the franchisor likes it because they can get some economies of scale out of working with one individual or one group who's managing multiple ones. In terms of the exit, if you are running and operating one, you can go back to a resale market. Uh, Franchise one, two, three does it. Other brokers will do it. And you just say, hey, I'm looking to sell. And it can be looked at in a couple of different ways. If it's not successful and you're just looking to dump it, typically the franchisor system requires that you still pay the franchise fee. And then you pay that franchise fee and you can be handed the keys the next day. For those that are turning a profit and that may have some margin, 
you look at it like a typical multiple, you know, maybe it's four or five times kind of depends on how that area of the industry is performing. And that's typically your, your cost of entry to get in. Some of these traded at one time, one to one and a half times revenue, depending on what the business might be. So if you own one unit, you're really going back to a resale market and you're selling to an individual. The other option you have is to sell it back to the organization. Like I mentioned, exponential fitness. These were not units that are unsuccessful, but because of COVID, some of them just said, hey, I don't know that I can wait it out. And exponential acquire those units back and now they're selling them just for the franchise fee because they like to get those in the hands of capable operators. If you are operating three or five or more units, now you have opportunity to sell to an investment group. And that investment group may have a portfolio of franchises where they can get an economy, some economies of scale out of their system. And we, we see there that the multiples can be higher, six, eight, sometimes 10 times, depending on how you fit within their system. So I think there's a number of different exit opportunities um, depending on your initial approach with the business. If I was to summarize, if you have one, you're typically in a resale market. If you have three to five plus, you have the chance to sell to perhaps a portfolio company and or to sell back to the original franchisor as well. Terrific. Really good stuff. Jimmy, I want to thank you for the time and definitely encourage people who, if you have a passing interest or you're just curious about the space, the book is terrific. The website is great. You guys put out some wonderful content. What I think is a really intriguing industry that is misunderstood in a lot of ways. If people do want to connect with you, learn about the book, the work you do, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Sure. So if they want to contact me directly, they can just email me at jimmy at franchise123.com. If they want to learn more about our system or do more research on franchising, they can go to franchise123.com. In about 30 seconds, you can create an account. They're free and you can go on there and start to research what we see as the largest consortium of information in franchising. So happy to answer any questions for them and love what I do. It's a lot of fun putting these businesses in the hands of capable operators. And I look forward to talking to anybody who would like to reach out. Awesome. Well, Jimmy, I want to thank you for the time and wish you the best of luck moving forward. I know I'm going to stay in touch. Because I, I am intrigued by the space and you know, wish you the best of luck moving forward. Thank you. Great, right, Brian. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Absolutely. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review. And stay tuned for our next episode coming soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.